An increase in the number of people testing for COVID-19 has been praised by politicians and medical experts as the number of recorded cases continues to fall. But it hasn't been all good news with allegations of racial bias within the health system after an Aboriginal man in New South Wales was denied priority testing because of his appearance. Further allegations of racial profiling occurred in a Western Australian hospital with comments allegedly made that Aboriginal patients only get the virus because they don't wash their hands. The incidents have highlighted the importance of ensuring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have access to culturally safe health care. Dr Chris Raller-Baker is an ophthalmologist and president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and Monica Barrelitz-McCabe is the CEO and they both join me now. Welcome to Speaking Out. Chris, we might just start with you. Can you tell us where you grew up? Thanks very much for having me on. I grew up in Brisbane, in the southern suburbs of Brisbane and went to school there and then went to University of Newcastle. And what led you on the path to studying medicine? My mum was one of uh, very early healthcare workers, Aboriginal healthcare workers, actually, in the early 1970s. And as I was growing up, she had said, look, you should look into healthcare. There are lots of great careers. And as I went through school, I did very, very well through school. And medicine came up on the radar. Mum actually worked with one of our very first Aboriginal doctors in Brisbane, and I met up with him when I was in about grade 10 and had a conversation about the possibility of doing medicine, and so I decided to do medicine and went from there. Like I said, I went to the University of Newcastle, so I moved straight down after school and did my medical degree. And why ophthalmology? Oh, I probably am terribly biased, but ophthalmology is the, uh, the best specialty in medicine. <laughs> Very early on in my medical student career, I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I'd always enjoyed the idea of surgery, but also internal medicine. And and there aren't many areas in medicine that can offer you such a wide scope of work. And I very, very quickly settled on ophthalmology. It's very competitive to get into because it's, you know, it is such a great job. And it was very much a dream. And uh, as it turned out, I was successful in in applying for the training program and and here I am. And what are some of the particular issues Indigenous people have with optical and eye health? So there's a lot of work done in Indigenous ophthalmology in Australia and the College of Ophthalmologists as well as many individual ophthalmologists and organisations like the Fred Hollows Foundation are putting a lot of work into improving Indigenous eyes The areas of concern are what are called refractive errors, so errors that can be corrected with spectacles, which we work very closely with optometrists to do. Uh, And from the ophthalmic perspective, we have cataracts and diabetes are two largely reversible areas of blindness that can be addressed, as well as the scourge of trachoma that we're working on to eliminate in this country. And Monica, let's turn to you now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Darwin in the Northern Territory, so Darwin um, has been my home until recently when I moved to Canberra. And what drew you to working in health? So I started working in health 
for the Department of Health and Ageing quite some time ago. From there, I was introduced to Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations um, and decided to start working in the community-controlled sector. And I guess my uh, journey with health continued from there. Uh, working with Menzies and then also more recently before AIDA with Flinders University in, in the medical program here in the Northern Territory. So trying to increase the number of doctors across the Northern Territory, but also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors coming through the program. Why is an organisation like AIDA so important? I think AIDA is very important for all of our doctors and our students uh, who are coming through the program to advocate on behalf of not just our doctors and our students, but for improved health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. By growing the number of doctors across Australia, we're hoping to make a contribution to, you know, better healthcare outcomes for our people, culturally safe environment, working with colleges and universities to provide culturally safe environment, and practitioners who will be reflective around culturally safe practices when they're in the working environment. Chris, what were some of your key concerns when news first came out about COVID-19? The key concerns around COVID-19 for Australia as a whole were the same as what they were for overseas. We've been very fortunate that those concerns haven't borne out at this point, and we, we hope that they won't. Specifically in the Indigenous context, we were very, very concerned, not only because of the effects that we would see more widely, but Indigenous people were thought to be at higher risk because of the social determinants of health, so access to clean running water, issues around overcrowding, issues of socioeconomic disadvantage, as well as the fact that COVID as a virus targets individuals with chronic disease. And diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure all afflict the Indigenous populations at higher rates than the mainstream population. And so for those reasons, we were very, very concerned about the impact it would have on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Monica, how has AIDA responded to the health crisis? What specific strategies have you been working on? So with AIDA, we were invited to be a a member of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Group on COVID-19. So in putting into the development of the management plan for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities... We've been asking our members to help develop informational videos, contributing to the national campaign around stopping the spread. We've also released a number of statements, one of them which was around racism and the possibility of higher levels of racism if we, you know, saw what we were projected to see initially and making sure that people were aware that racism is not to be tolerated in the healthcare system. A number of other things that we've done, we're supporting our members with peer support meetings twice a week and we're working with the four other workforce peaks who are Natsua, IHA and Katsunam around delivering webinars around self-care, racism and uh, various other topics and developing toolkits for Aboriginal health professionals as well as posters for communities to use around their services. And Chris, AIDA raised concerns over the equitable delivery of services in testing for COVID-19. What sorts of things need to be done to address racial bias in the health system more widely? Early on in the COVID crisis, we had a number of our members reporting the behaviours that earlier in this program you alluded to. The bigger picture that Indigenous peoples have been asking for for a very, very long time is a system that understands the 
peculiarities of Indigenous health, but more widely addresses understandings around cultural safety. Monica's already mentioned cultural safety as a topic and has given some detail about that. In essence, what it is, is it's about having a system that's non-judgmental. And if you can do it right for Indigenous people, you can do it right for all peoples entering the health system. And so our concerns for AIDA that we've had for quite a long time were really highlighted in instances with this COVID crisis where we had a failure of a delivery of culturally safe services uh, or reports of that in particular areas around the country. And that was an incredibly disturbing report to have coming back because the impacts that that could potentially have on people in the COVID crisis. If it was really to take and people were fearful of attending uh, health systems, then we were very concerned that the impacts would be much, much worse than what they were already expected to be. Monica, I might just draw you out a little bit on this topic because obviously talking around issues of racial bias in the system and the need to create better spaces for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people within that system does lead to one of the reasons why it's so important to have Aboriginal healthcare professionals, Torres Strait Islander healthcare professionals and particularly doctors. And I was just wondering from your perspective as the CEO of AIDA, how do you explain to people the difference that actually having Aboriginal doctors make? in this particular space? Aboriginal Torres Strait doctors make an impact on our community because our people want to see, you know, there's Aboriginal Torres Strait doctors in their services. They feel comfortable accessing. They feel that they can go there, talk to that doctor and be comfortable in an environment um, where there's no judgment, they feel safe and they're going to get equitable treatment. Chris, there's been quite a lot of focus on the particular issues facing remote Aboriginal communities and obviously there continues to be concern around things like food security in those areas. But I was just wondering from your perspective as a doctor, do you think enough's being done in urban communities and regional centres where we have very, very large Aboriginal communities? Do you think that they have the level of support that's needed? That's a good question. A lot of the focus, interestingly, in Indigenous health is around rural remote Fortunately, because of that focus, we've avoided COVID getting into any rural or or remote communities. So that's a win. The numbers that we do have, though, and they are relatively low, I think last count they're in their 50s, those numbers in Indigenous populations were in urban, rural and metro areas. A long, long time ago, I worked on the south side of Brisbane in the Indigenous Health Service, and one of the problems there was the focus was on rural or remote and it proved difficult at times actually to get resources for our metropolitan populations. So by no means is the focus on rural remote, you know, a a new issue, and it's not to downplay the needs for rural remote. It's absolutely essential that we get the services out there. In terms of food supply, for the bigger centres, it's not been so much of a problem. There are some reports coming in from our members in smaller country towns that access not just to food but other supplies has been made more difficult because of supply chain strains and that is a concern. But at this point, they seem to be getting supplies through. But as I said earlier, it's not to downplay, it's not to undercut the focus on rural remote. Rural remote is critical because of the isolation issues and we have delivered very, very well on that. In terms of our more urbanised rural areas, particularly up and down the East Coast. There are difficulties, but 
to the best of our knowledge, those populations still have supplies coming through. I just wanted to focus a little bit on another aspect of the COVID-19 issue, Monica. Obviously, we're looking at it in terms of the health crisis, but the other concern is that it might affect educational pathways. And I was just wondering if you have had any sense of whether or not going forward, there's going to be an impact on the number of Indigenous people who are now looking to become doctors or to study and what might be done to ensure that we're still getting that pipeline. We haven't had any uh, indication so far to say the numbers coming into universities or applying through the medical pathways will decrease, only time will tell. However, some universities do have good Indigenous entry pathways and if they continue to support those pathways, hopefully we'll maintain our numbers. We'll need to look at real strategies if the impacts with the medical deans as well as AIDA, if we do start to see an impact of COVID on the numbers coming into universities. The other issue that we've been looking at and, you know, making sure our students are supported has been concern from final year students around graduation. So now that they're now starting to move back into universities, their anxiety around not being able to progress or their studies this year being impacted is starting to decrease and they're looking forward to their internship years. But we're not sure what the impact and the universities are working with us and we're getting feedback from our students that things are changing in terms of moving back from online into this classroom. But we just need to make sure that there's no impact on those who are already in the program and their progress through medical school. Of course, some of the really important work that AIDA's done over the last decade has been in working with the Council of Australian Medical Deans to really change the curriculum within universities to ensure that there is a much greater understanding of what it means to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. And Chris, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit from your perspective about why that has been so important in terms of really addressing systemic racism within the system. It's funny, I was having a conversation earlier this morning actually with a colleague about the importance of diversity in a system and the importance of diversity of opinion. And he described it in his terms, he he grew up on a farm and he said, look, we're very, very good with farm animals, of hybridising different animals to create a better animal, you know, a a better sort of a strain or plant or whatever it is. And, And He said ideas are the same, human ideas are the same, that by combining different perspectives and different thoughts, we can often arrive at a better solution than if there was just one way of thinking. And what he was getting at was the strength of diversity. And that's what individuals can bring to a system. By having a diverse system, by having a number of different backgrounds and a number of different ways of being and ways of thinking, we actually can end up with a a stronger system and better solutions to the problems that present themselves to all of us. And that's the piece of the puzzle where Indigenous doctors can come in and where we can play a role. We've been in Western medicine where they first graduate in the early 1980s, but we actually have many, many thousands of years' worth of healthcare before contact with the British and a long, long history of understanding health systems and health paradigms. And there's a strength in that knowledge that can be brought to the mainstream system to help hybridise thought, hybridise ways of doing things, not only in terms of the delivery of medicine, but in terms of the behaviour and the way that we think about healthcare. Monica, I just want to pick up on a 
point that you just alluded to early on when you were talking about your career path. And you have worked in the community controlled health sector. And we've seen that sector do so much heavy lifting through this COVID-19 health crisis. So I was just wondering from your perspective, from all your experience, how important is the community controlled sector in health from what you've seen? So my experience with the community controlled sector has only been relatively new, given that we've got Redfern, I think, celebrating its 50th anniversary uh, next year. But I've always seen the importance in people being able to go to a service. It's where they can go in. It's the whole care, mind, body and spirit, basically, when you go into a community controlled sector. The heavy lifting that uh, Nacho and the community controlled sector has done through COVID has been amazing and being able to get our government to respond much quicker than um, perhaps if they weren't as organised and collaborative as they have been. Everyone's had to change how they live and work during this time. Chris, how has your life changed? There's been a lot of preparation in gearing up for the impact of COVID that we're waiting for. And so my life has changed in terms that some of my work has become less busy. So my clinical life, there aren't as many patients coming through for practical reasons like social distancing but also because people just haven't been attending appointments that have been staying home. The practice itself has changed. Uh, there's been a lot more telehealth. A number of patients have had to be rescheduled if their appointments were urgent. And additionally, the response that Monica was referring to and, and our task force has actually created a lot of work too. So I've been no less busy, but busy in different ways, busy preparing for COVID, busy helping to be a part of the system to protect all of our communities and all of our society from COVID and advising when and where required to help keep on top of it. And, you know, I think we can all be very, very proud of where we are at the moment and what we've achieved as a country. And Monica, what about you, CEO of, a, of an organisation? What sorts of changes have you had to implement and weather through this time? Getting through the changes that we've implemented is uh, being quite substantial in terms of, like many people, with uh, transitioning our workforce to working from home. I took the opportunity to take that literally and work from home in Darwin, but the connectivity that we've been able to achieve and the transition for the staff to working from home has been great. Also keeping connected with our members and starting up these forums through Zoom and GoToMeetings and all these other platforms that we've been using has been great. We've been very busy, COVID-focused, but we've been mindful to make sure that we're able to continue developing our programs. So it's very busy. One thing, we do save on time travel, but we use that time now face-to-face -face or virtual face-to-face. -face. So it's been a very uh, interesting time with opportunities as well for the future, but being involved in key programs and development of a key document to be able to protect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or through this COVID virus has been very informative and an honour for me anyway. And just finally this evening, obviously life's changed. We're not going out as much, if at all, and people are spending a lot more time at home, a lot more time by themselves, a lot more time with close family. I guess one of the things we've noticed is that people have been learning a little bit about themselves during this time. And I was just wondering, Chris, what have you learned about yourself during this period? 
I find it because everything's been virtual and face to face. I found that now, if I talk on the phone without seeing someone, I feel quite rude. I know that sounds strange, but we've become so used to Zoom meetings and you know virtual meetings and FaceTiming. For me, that's been a big change. I, I like to actually chat to the person now as, as though they're there. And it's only a small thing, but it does feel funny now. Sort of, I'll be talking on the phone thinking, but I can't see this person. <laughs> so I guess it's the, the impact of technology on how we do things. And I, I hope, I hope that a lot of the meetings that we do, that going forwards, we don't have to travel as much and that perhaps we're more used to doing things virtually, you know, with a face on a screen rather than a metre in front of us. And what about you, Monica? What have you learned about yourself during this time? I've learned that it doesn't matter where we are, we can still connect. And it's been a really good thing to be able to connect with family and see how aunties and uncles and my dad have been able to adjust to the technology and probably feeling more connected than ever because we've been reaching out more during this period of time. And it's nice to enjoy some quiet time away from electronics, I have to say. It can be a bit much sometimes, so yeah. Well, Aid has done some really important work during this period and it's been great to have you both on with us tonight on Speaking Out to share that. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us. Dr Chris Rallabaker is an ophthalmologist and president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. Monica Barrelitz-McCabe is the CEO.